0: The Linux Reality Podcast is sponsored by O'Reilly Media, spreading the knowledge of innovators through its books, online services, magazines, and conferences. Visit them today at Mm o'Reilly.com. everybody. Welcome to Linux Reality. This is episode 89, and I'm your host, Chess Griffin. Uh, for those of you who are new or just joining us for the first time, welcome. And for those of you who've listened before, welcome back. Uh, thanks for listening. We've got a great episode this week. We've got an interview with uh, Paul Asidorian and Larry Pesci, the two uh, co-hosts of the Paul.com Security Weekly Podcast, a fantastic security podcast, uh, easily one of the best, if not the best, security podcast out there. Uh, fantastic audio quality, great production. It's a, I, mean, I can't recommend it enough if you're not listening to it already. Uh, so it's really cool stuff. I know we've been, you know, I've been wanting to talk about security for a while, and so I was very pleased to have the opportunity to uh, talk to them. It's a very long interview, over an hour. Uh, so I won't do any listener tips or feedback or anything this week. I'll get to the interview here in just one second, and then I'll just come back and say goodbye. But one thing I wanted to mention here up front, just one more little plug for uh, the the little 2007, you know, project donations drive that I mentioned uh, previously. Uh, The idea here is that I'm just trying to encourage uh, Linux reality listeners to, you know, make a small donation to any free or open source project uh, that they choose, you know, some piece of software that they use or project that they like, you know, an organization that they support, something like that. Uh, you know, in the spirit of holiday giving and all that, just you know, just wanted to kind of you know put that out there and see what we can do as a community, uh, you know, to show our support in a financial sense to these uh, you know folks who develop the software and, and who run these organizations that we that we use and that we enjoy and and, and all that kind of stuff. So. Uh, please do consider that. If you do make the donation, just let me know. Send me an email to linuxreality at gmail.com, and I'll put it up on the page and you know get you the free CD or DVD if it's at least uh, $15. So uh, thanks for considering that, and let's get right to this great interview. Okay, well, tonight I'm speaking with uh, Paul Asadorian and Larry Pesci from the Paul.com Security Weekly podcast. Guys, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for taking the time. Thanks, Jess. Thanks for having us, Jess. Well, this is really a treat. Um, You know, I told you guys before I'm I'm a huge fan of your show, and I know a lot of people are. A lot of my listeners, in fact, have, you know, prodded me to talk to you guys um, about security, and this is actually a topic that's come up quite a bit. Uh, for me, and it's something I've shot away from because, you know, I figure I'm, <laughs> I'm not really the right the the uh, right one to talk about. So I'm glad that that we were able to uh, finally connect here.
1: Oh, we're supposed to know something about security. Oh, <laughs> no,
0: crap. that's what I hear. <laughs> that's what they tell me, at least. Oh. No, but uh, you guys do a great job, and I, I look forward to to talking about some things here. Well, thank uh, you very you.
1: much, Jess. Yeah, it, it means a lot when uh, when people give us positive feedback about our, our podcast. So.
0: Why don't we actually start talking about the podcast? Can you just tell me a little bit about it? You know, give me the website. Of course, I'll put the plug and the links in the show notes and all that kind of good sure. stuff. Sure. How long have you guys been going?
1: Since um, let's see, October two thousand five. Larry and I yeah. both traveled to. Los Angeles, which was originally a, a sand security conference, which was supposed to be held in New Orleans. Yeah, Katrina fixed that though. Yeah, oh, Katrina right, right, right. forced us to go to Los Angeles. And um, Larry and I both live here in Rhode Island, um, and uh, work very. You know, actually, Larry works probably. You could throw a rock and hit where Larry works from my house, and um, got to know each other by going to Sands in um, Los Angeles. Now. I had done multiple presentations, uh, monthly presentations actually as a part of my job to local systems administrator for a large university here in Rhode Island. So there was a group of about 20 people who would listen to me on a monthly basis. And I was one of them. Yeah, Larry was actually one of them. And <laughs> I would talk about the same things we talk about on Paul.com. I would talk about the latest vulnerabilities, the latest exploits, the latest things going on in security research. And I'd throw in fun things like Madonna's website getting hacked and you know the interesting things going on in computer security. And people really liked it. And it progressed to the point where I would actually stream it via live video um, to all the colleges and universities in Rhode Island for whatever reason that kind of that kind of you know came to a halt and um, I wasn't able to do it anymore and I really missed it and a, a coworker of mine that you'll hear referred to on our podcast as Duck Sauce um, he, he actually is turned me on to you know I had bought a Mac and I had gotten an iPod and me getting into the whole podcasting thing and he's like you should do a podcast and I'm like, yeah, sounds like a good idea. I'm like, ah, I'm going to L.A. I'm like, we we'll are I go to a podcast? How hard can it be?
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What is this really going to get us into? <laughs> right. You know, and, and from my perspective, I was looking to take what Paul was doing that had sort of gone by the wayside and bring that into my organization. And when Paul said, hey, you know, I'm checking out this podcast thing. And I go – Oh my God! Let's do that.
1: <laughs> yeah. So Larry was totally on board. So I'm like, cool. I got I got people who are supporting me. I'm like, let's go record a podcast. So we went in the uh, the hotel in in uh, Los Angeles, and we. Um, found a little spot to go record. You can still go listen to it, episode one of paul.com. We had um, Core Security actually bought us beer for our – yep. so they supported us from episode one. Um, I remember
0: you know, that episode. That was pretty funny. <laughs> yeah.
1: It, it, you know, it, it's kind of it's kind of a fun little episode. We knew nothing about audio and podcasting. So. <laughs>
2: that was evident as well. <laughs>
1: yeah, and, and we had gotten friendly with the people from Sourcefire. Larry, you knew um, mm-hmm. some people from Sourcefire. Yep. And they hooked us up with Marty, and we had used snort since we started our career, so Marty was like you know a god in our circles, and I'm like, "Oh my God, Marty, rest you know and uh we had some beers with him the night before, and you know he agreed to do an interview, so that kind of got our start. We made it to the front page of the Sands Internet Storm Center, and from there it's pretty much been like this wild raging machine that's just gone out of control and is like so far beyond larry and myself um it's grown to um some episodes um in in the past six months have have gotten as many as eight thousand downloads and i i never would have dreamed that something that larry and i did on a whim when Mm -hmm. we first like really became good friends in 2005 going to a sans conference would be a show that 8,000 people are downloading every month. We never dreamed that it would grow to something that large. But, you know, that's how we got our start and we kind of just... You know, we took it from there. Um, I I think it's a great mix of of talent, certainly. Um, You know, Larry and and Twitchy and Joe and the Mason and most recently Joel Esler and all the people we've interviewed have just had this infusion of talent into our show. Um, We've learned a great deal about, as we were talking chess, um, you know, all of us were talking about how to uh, increase the production values of our show, Um, you know. We've learned a lot about audio production, how to make our show uh, sound good and, and really compete with the commercial radio that's going on there. And, and I think consistency played into that too. You know, We try never to miss an episode. We try always to make people fall behind a couple of episodes. I think it's kind of our goal. And we noticed that people, because we're putting out a show very consistently, will fall behind. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think the mix of, of you know talent, production qualities... Um, Consistency, and I think one of the most important things is obviously good content. You know, we work very hard to. Pull from our jobs every week to um, pull from what's happening in the security industry. Do technical segments. Um, do what's timely and informative. Most recently, um, you know, Larry's been working on a lot of metadata work. And has done some technical segments um, along those lines. I've been working a lot with hacking the iPhone, which in 2007 was one of the most searched for terms on Google. So we try and do what's timely, and we try and provide good technical content. And you know, that combination is just kind of to what maybe what we are today.
0: Yeah, well I, I think what's really cool is is um and you already said this, but you know, a lot of people seem to me listen to security now. It's obviously one of the big Twit podcasts it and all, is. but um, and I listen to it as well. But your show, what I really like about your show, and the reason why I like yours so much more is because it is so technical, and because you kind of go through the news. I mean, I'm not in security, uh, but I just I find it fascinating, and I, I think it's so cool to hear you guys talk about this story and that story, and kind of really you know drill down to the details. And you know, for for the layperson to listen, I think you know there's a lot there to be you know to be learned.
1: Yeah, and, and I think you know one of the things that I missed was that at the end of the day, you know, we talk about what our show is, how many mm-hmm. downloads it gets, and all that kind of stuff. At the end of the day, it's a bunch of security Guys. geeks sitting around drinking beer and talking, talking about, their, about what they do yeah. and, you know, exactly. and what interests them. yeah, Exactly. Yeah. And, and I think as long as we stick to that, that people will listen. Yeah.
2: And, and, oh, dude, check this out. Check what I did this week. And that's our tech segment.
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then all of a sudden it becomes a technical segment, right?
0: That's cool. That's how did you guys get started in security? I mean, what you know, going back, uh, you know, before the podcast, you know, how long have you guys been in this industry? How right, got yeah. you started?
2: Yeah, so Paul, let me uh, start with that one. Um, it was actually kind of funny. Uh, our organization that uh, I was working for at the time uh, did not have a security function um quite honestly they had some security issues come up and i was the one that was most in the know um only because shortly before that with you know six or eight months or so um i had my first cable modem i threw up that uh, linux firewall with ip tables um to do nat and i'm like oh yeah okay cool cable guys here all right i'm moving in great got my computer set up let me get the other computer set up i'll go back and secure that later you know, three weeks later, I'm like, "Why is my internet connection so slow?" And come to find out, um, I got owned. You know, my firewall got owned. Was a Linux box. It was running a web server on it and a bunch of other stuff. You know, bad, bad, bad. So I had to learn from my mistakes, and you know, you know learning from my mistakes really gave me that push to say, "Ooh, well, this security thing is really important." And you know, what can I do to to make things more secure? And you know, sort of carried over to my job as to like, "Oh my God, you know, this isn't right." so it was you know more of an eye opening experience and i just took that eye opening experience and and ran with it
1: i th- i think I, I i wanted to be involved in computer security and really be a hacker since i was probably 8 or 9 years old and um, I started on the Apple E. My parents signed me up for computer courses. So I, I really owe it to my mom and dad for getting me involved and keeping me involved with computers from a very early age. Mm-hmm. I had um, one of those. Great yeah, yep. Yeah, it was a great hacker's computer as Mike Poor termed it in our our podcast, but... I watched the, the movie um, War Games probably mm. shortly thereafter. Mm-hmm. And a my parents watched it with me and they wouldn't let me get a modem for my computer because <laughs> I think they were afraid that I would have started World War Three. And ever since then, I really wanted to be a computer hacker. So I think by the time I was in junior high, going into high school, um, I really started um, picking up the computer thing again and really took an interest in computer security and didn't start – thinking of it as a career until I accepted a job as a Unix, uh, Solaris actually, systems administrator. And, and that kind of speaks to where I think people need to be with respect to security is I, I think you need to be a, a systems administrator and a network administrator before you can be in security because that gives you such a good perspective as to you know what the task is you have ahead of you and an understanding of how you make things work. Once you understand that, you can understand how to defend it and how to break it. You know, I think I got thrown into security like many of us have was that, you know, the security guy was out sick and um ended up leaving the organization and they handed me um three checkpoint firewalls probably with about 30 rules each and said Oh, you want to do security? Well, yeah, that's enough for you to just go ahead and and take over these firewalls and rules. And um, oh, by the way, you have a security audit coming up, and you have to lock down about twenty Solaris systems as well. And um, I started down that path researching tools and techniques and firewalls and TCP/IP, and um, I was just eating it up. I'm like, this is just awesome. And then a friend of mine turned me on to SANS and said, hey, you know, you can get like a certification in this and do this for a living. And I was like, no way. Get out of here. Uh, so I went to New Orleans for my first SANS conference um, and I took the intrusion detection track with Marty Resch, uh, Judy uh, and Steven. And um, it was kind of history from there. I ended up getting gold on my on my uh, intrusion detection certification and that was it. I was hooked. I was doing security um, for the, you know, the rest of my career. right? And, you know, you know,
2: chess not to cut you off, but, uh, you know, one of the things that I think that Paul, you and I both suffer from is the ability to think outside the box. And that's really, you know, we talked about this just in our podcast just a few minutes ago. Um, that's one of the things that's really critical for, you know, some of the security folks, both from an attacker and a defender. And, you know, that was one of the things that was always, you know, in my household growing up was the ability to think outside the box. Um, My father was an electrical engineer by trade. Uh, My grandfather was, you know, a self-taught medical professional. You know, he wasn't a doctor, but he invented medical devices and was an EE as well. Um, All self-taught during the depression. And it was all those things about, you know, taking something that you know, does one thing and making it do something entirely different that you really want it to. And, you know, I get a lot of mine from the hardware side, you know, having the 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 family and the EE and the adventure- inventorship. Um, and that really carries over into you know the software and, and into the computer space.
1: Oh, yeah. I remember looking at the source code of my Apple IIe for Hangman that had been provided to me and, and also ripping hardware things apart, too. My mom was always yelling at me. She's like, you're taking it apart, but you don't know how to put it back together. Yeah, I'm like, no, yeah. oh, but it was fun taking it apart. Yeah, so,
2: Paul, what's the famous thing when I come over and you say, hey, dude, check out this yeah, new yeah. Gizmo, gizmo that I got?
1: Larry still does that now. Every time Larry comes yeah. over and I, I hand him any kind of hardware, I'm like, dude, check this out. I turn over to like go get a beer or something. I turn back around and he's got it in like a million pieces. I'm like, dude, you were only holding it for 30 seconds.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That that, that actually reminds me. I remember my very first computer was an Apple II Plus, I think it was. Mm -hmm. And I had actually bought – this was like, I don't know, 1978 or 1980. And there was a ROM chip that you could buy – and you could plug it into the board, and what it would do is it would automatically drop you down to the assembly prompt, uh, basically bypassing any kind of boot process that the floppy would have or or what have you. And me and all my buddies, you know, we would use this chip and we would basically uh, pop in a game or something, and it would drop us right down to the assembly. And we'd try to, you know, pull the game off the disk, and it was just, you know, playing around, messing around with the computers. It was just, it was just a lot of fun. You know, kind of kind of reminds me of that.
1: That's it, and and that's really what hacking is all about. I think everything yeah. that we do up until now and moving forward into the future is just all about that kind of spirit of things. It's just you know hacking things, figuring out how they work, how to break them, how to do things with them that they weren't intended to do. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Now I've got a you know some some questions that a, a lot of my listeners have have sent me over the last several months in regards to Linux and desktop use and home users and that kind of thing. But before I get to that, obviously it sounds like Based on what you all do, you work with a lot of – or I would say probably mostly corporate clients. Is that right?
1: Um, uh, corporate, small business. Yeah, um, that's going to differentiate. Uh, that's different between Larry and myself I think. Yeah, and, okay. you know, and even, even depending on what – What you know, hat we're wearing
2: at the time. Exactly, exactly. Right. You know, you know, jack of all trades, You know, master right. of none in my case.
1: I, I, I can actually speak a little more frankly about where I work. Um, I work for an organization called Ocean. Mm-hmm. And it's a consortium of nonprofit organizations in Rhode Island. And those nonprofits encompass uh, healthcare organizations, state government, and primarily universities and colleges. So much of what I deal with is still in the university space. Now, I worked for a, and you can use Google to figure out which one, I worked for a very large university in Rhode Island for about six or seven years. Um, so I'm very much in tune with the university space. Now, uh, on top of that, I've done consulting um, for large corporations uh, and small businesses as well. So I kind of I, I walk the full spectrum, but I definitely appreciate the challenges that implementing security in a university environment, in an educational environment, presents itself. And probably that's my that's where a lot of my expertise lies with respects to security in that, in that terms. Mm-hmm.
2: And I, I really don't say exactly you know, who or what I do for a living. Um, but you know, obviously have some consulting on that and see all sorts of other environments. Um, but mm-hmm. the, the, the main one um, you know, certainly has some uh, fairly stringent government regulations that go along with it. Um, it's nonprofit, so there may or may not be a lot of money. You know, you know how nonprofits go. Um, but fortunately, um, a lot of the organizations I do work with, um, you know, do see a lot of value in the security and, you know, make a lot of investment and those types of things. So that really works out for me. And, uh, yeah. And then again, you know, next thing you know, uh, I'm home from work and my mom's calling me and saying, I want to buy this on the Internet. <laughs> <Yeah>. So, <laughs> so you know, we, we all have our, our little bit of, you know, you, you got a family and you got the small business of, you know, one or two PCs and they want to set up a wireless network mm-hmm. so they can do credit card processing. And,
1: right. Uh, right.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, along those lines, um, and I imagine I think I've heard you guys say you're both primarily Mac users. Is that right?
1: That's correct. Uh, yep.
2: I'm okay. I'm a fairly recent Mac convert, um, so yeah, I'm a Mac user now. <laughs> okay,
1: okay. I, I, I've been probably for two plus years now. Um,
2: I'm probably eight months, and I still have a um, a closet full of Windows and Linux boxes at home.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, you can I, I you can probably appreciate this first question. I guess you probably get this being Mac users, you know, running into folks who are switching to Mac from Windows, one thing I've run into quite a bit is is new Linux users who are coming from Windows who are so used to um you know running antivirus or McAfee or Norton or um you know what you know Spybot search and destroy and you know stuff like that. Um what kinds of things are there uh, for the Linux user to worry about I, I, I know since you guys don't use Linux you know primarily you know you don't need to mention specific applications or anything, but just in a, in a conceptual sense, maybe to put it in you know real plainly, do Linux and Mac users have this much to worry about with those types of vulnerabilities
1: well I, I think that from a security perspective in general, they have certainly just as much to worry about with you know, respects to securing your your computer. Um, you know, there, there's really, when you think about security from, you know, a 10,000-foot level, um, it's pretty much the same no matter what operating system you're running. You're going to implement a lot of the same principles. You know, mm-hmm. Larry, I'm sure you're going to chime in on this whole oh, yeah. thing. You oh, know, yeah. when you run any operating system, Windows, Linux, OS ten, I think one of the first things that comes to mind is to only be running the services that you need to be running. And and only to run the software and install the software that you need to do what you need to do on your computer. And right. we talk a lot right. about that in our show.
2: Right. right. One of the first mistakes I made as a, as a new Linux user was you know install Red Hat and click that everything button. Mm-hmm. I mean because right. I didn't know what I needed at that point.
1: Yeah, and, and like when I install something like a Debian Linux, um, which is my personal favorite Linux distribution, for those that are <laughs> curious about that, I install it. As a base operating system, it's really just the kernel and the user land binaries that come with it and I don't install anything else. Debian will ask you, hey, do you want me to install a whole bunch of packages that I think you need in order to be a server or in order to be a desktop? And I say, no, I only want to install the software that I know I'm going to need and use on this computer. And I think that from a security perspective, that's one of the most important lessons that you can, you know, take away and apply in your everyday life using a, a, any kind of computer, whether it be Windows OS 10 or Linux, is only install the stuff and enable the stuff that you need in order to do what you want to do with it.
0: Right. Yeah. The uh, the uh, net install uh, disk from Debian is is great. Yeah, I use that <laughs> on
1: all my servers. I manage yeah. thirty servers as part of my job, and. We install them all the same way. We use the net install, mm-hmm. and you know we yep. start from a clean slate on all of them.
2: Right, right. And in in case you were wondering, my favorite distributions, you know, Paul, I took a uh, sort of a, a bite out of your book, as it were, or a page out of your book. Mm-hmm. Um, Debian on a server is absolutely fantastic. Um, I run mm-hmm. Debian on my servers at home. Unfortunately, at work, I don't really have to manage Linux boxes or anything like that. Um, but when I do, I'm inclined to go Debian, and I like Ubuntu on my desktop because usually my desktop, I just want it to work. Mm -hmm. And half the time, the stuff that I want to do on my Ubuntu desktop doesn't. So uh, I'm sort of stuck between a rock and a hard place.
1: You know, it's interesting. I I run uh, a Mac as my primary laptop. And, um, you know, I have my my mail and word processing and IRC and instant messaging on there. I also have Windows on my Mac via Parallels, Mm -hmm. which Mm -hmm. I use to run selected applications. And then I have a whole separate laptop um, for my job that runs Debian Linux. And and that does various tasks. Mostly that um, helps me out when I do penetration testing. And I'm testing the security of a network. I have a laptop to run all the tools I need to do um, my penetration testing with. And then I have another laptop for the podcast that dual boots Windows and Linux. Um, So I really kind of have my hands in all the different operating systems. So...
0: Yeah. Well, and I, I imagine as part of your job, you kind of need to keep tabs on on everything, like, you know, all the different operating systems as well. I, I imagine also that in addition to some of the points you were just making about, you know, just kind of being aware of the operating system and only, in, you know, installing uh, needed services and things like that, you know, even taking a step further out, you know, maybe a physical step further out, there's still, you know, obviously a need to have a you know, NAT router and, and, you know, things like that. If you're going to have a wireless network, WPA and things like that, that I imagine would apply across any kind of operating system as well. Isn't that right?
2: <laughs> you got it right on, you know, and, and, you know, don't necessarily fall back on that NAT router because uh, certainly you can, you can open ports on that NAT router. Um, really something that can do uh stateful uh, packet inspection and reassemble all that good stuff um, is really something you want to do. Not all of the consumer devices will do it. Uh, certainly may be suitable for your mom and dad and shut down all those ports, um, but you know for someone who's a little bit more of a techie, you know if you can afford it, you know go with a, a low end net screen, go with a, a an older Pix, um mm. something uh, along those lines. Uh, I know Netgear does make some uh spi stateful packet inspection devices. I have one at home. it's one of the gamer fuel. Uh, powered um, routers. That that's what I'm using at home, mostly because, again, you know, what's that saying about you know the cobbler's kids have the worst shoes. <laughs> um, I come home from a, a day of you know securing networks, and I just want my network at home to work because yeah. I don't want to listen to my wife say, right. "I can't get on the internet." <laughs> <laughs>
1: you know, I, and I think with respect to security, it, you know, it, it brings up an interesting uh, topic for discussion, and one that I talk about in my most recent keynote presentation that I've I've been giving is that. You know, we talked about Linux and Windows and OS 10, and how you have to secure those respective operating systems. You need to think of your devices that you're plugging into, into the network in the same light. So, when you deploy a a print server and a JetDirect print server, when you deploy a firewall, when you Deploy that fax, copy, print server Mm, at work. Your NAS. Yeah, your network attack storage. Exactly. You need to think of that as something else on the network that you need to secure just as you would your desktop or server. You need to turn off all the services you're not using, change all the default passwords, and do all those things security-wise that you would do to your laptop or desktop or server um, on your embedded devices, and I think that 's most often overlooked in a lot of organizations, and things that you 're overlooking are going to be targets for attackers
0: well you know i 'm glad you mentioned that Paul because i got to say one of the one of the most interesting aspects of your show that i 've learned since listening to it is and I know you guys you know touch on this frequently is the the vulnerabilities of these embedded devices and these, you know, these other devices, these, you know, printers and faxes and whatnot. I mean, it's just I, I find that that's just a real eye opener, and it's unbelievable that uh, you know to think that. I think what was it? Let's see. You were thinking. All right. I think you guys were talking even just last week about something about the power strip. What was yeah, that? Yeah, we were that, we were, that, that was, was last the, week.
2: The, the yeah. power, the, one of the APC uh, yeah. power distribution units, um, you could uh, have someone authenticate and have someone else try to authenticate and say someone else was logged in already. Um, the original user logs out and then the second person you know could click refresh and would log in for them. I mean, you know, with one of those power distribution units, you know, what can you do with something like that? You know, how about turn off power supply to your, this rack of servers? You know, that's a problem for, for you know, someone that's trying to defend that. And an attacker might see that as a great opportunity to deny service.
1: Yeah, and, and along those lines, one of the things that I like to stress and that I think that, um, you know, members of our show like, like Twitchy and others have, have, you know, stressed too was... That it's all about the information, and, and that quote comes from the the wonderful movie Sneakers, which still has, you know, I, I think um, uh, impact in our lives today. And it couldn't be more true. And that if I can get into something like a power distribution unit, and I can steal information such as your SNMP string, maybe you use that same SNMP string to query your routers and switches. Uh So now I have access credentials that I stole from a power distribution unit uh, that I can use on your routers and switches. And oh, by the way, I can query your routers and switches and using that query string, dump all the information from them, including the password to maybe your router. Then I can take that password from your router and go crack it offline. And now I can log into your router. And all this happened because you didn't update firmware on your power distribution unit that was
0: sitting in your rack. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I just think that kind of stuff is really amazing and it's, it's cool to hear, uh, but it's, it's kind of scary,
1: too. It's not just kind of
2: scary. It's really scary. Yeah,
1: <laughs> now, to allocate resources to um, keep tabs on the firmware updates for your power distribution unit and then to apply them, because what if you have to power down all your servers to apply firmware updates to your power distribution unit, which may be working perfectly fine? And you know the old uh, saying, if it's not broke, don't fix it. Um, you know, that can be a really hard thing for organizations to go through all of their devices that may be running critical infrastructure and apply the latest firmware updates when, you know, the perceived risk may not be all that great. And I think a lot of our time is spent convincing people that um, there is risk in these devices and that you need to pay attention to it.
0: You know, speaking of these types of devices, I know you guys do a lot of hacking on the the Linksys. Or a wireless router <laughs> yay thank you for um, the plug <laughs> got, yeah you guys have a book out and everything i've actually got two of these devices um i love them and i love all the different firmware that's out there can you guys talk a little bit about the device and the different firmwares and maybe what you know what you all uh, spend most of your time working with i think it's open word isn't it,
1: it yeah is. yeah we originally wanted to um write an article
0: <laughs> yeah this is, is funny
1: is how it all started now I, I you know Larry and I both were always interested in embedded devices and um the security of them and mm-hmm. upgrading firmware on them and the it, different kinds of firmware yep. and
2: again, taking a device and subverting it to your own
1: you know particular whims. Yeah. hacking it basically you know hacking in the truest sense of the word and um so we started to write an article and then we said, Wow, we have way too much content for an article.' Um, this should be a book. And lo and behold, someone actually agreed to publish our book. <laughs> and that <laughs> book is called Lynx's Ultimate WRT 54G Hacking by Singer's Publishing. By Singer's Publishing. And um, link will be in the show notes. Yeah, it, it's really, <laughs> you know, the chronicles of Larry and myself and how we were able to. Um, evaluate all the options out there that you really had for your Linksys WRT54G devices. And, you know, there are several out there that are um, hackable. The different kinds of operating systems or firmware you can put on them and what that enables you to do. And I think it's a really good... um, Topic for discussion and, and good exercise for people for a lot of reasons. You know, number one, you can take a really cheap device and make it do all kinds of fun and interesting things. You know, Larry has hacks in there about how to turn it into a PBX. Um, there are hacks in there how to turn it into a wireless sniffer. You can use it for VPN. Mm-hmm. You can do. You, you can use it for uh, a wireless media streamer. Yeah, there's. Yeah, you can bridge devices on your network. It, there's all kinds of usages for that. That. Um, a lot are security uh, focused. A lot are just usability wise. Really cool things you can do for you know a fifty nine dollar router.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and and sort of to that, um, even that you know I've had some some folks contact me and say, hey, I'm really interested in you know taking one of these routers and implementing it. Um, for for some stuff, you know, how do I do this? And, you know, one of them may be, you know, I want to add a serial port to it so I can, you know, tell that to this box and issue commands to a device that's attached via a serial port. Oh, well, you, you know, if you think about that, you're picking up the $60 router and you know, you do these mods to it, and it doesn't cost you a lot of money to do these mods. It's just a little bit of time. And if you think about what that really is, it becomes a single-port terminal server. And, mm-hmm. you know, you pay 600 to to $1,000 for a single port terminal server. And yeah. this is, you know, a 60 to to $100 device.
1: You know, and not only that, we, you know, Larry's got a great presentation that he talks about taking these small embedded devices and hiding them. In people's networks and using them as a covert channel to mm-hmm. access the resources inside an organization's network. Right, and not
2: only hiding them in devices, but hiding them in a device so that they have very little idea as to, you know, the device, the host device has not changed um, significantly, so that it appears to be normal. Right, you know, like you take a printer and you stuff an access point in it.
1: And, you know, That's who's amazing.
0: That. <laughs> I never would have thought of that.
1: <laughs> yeah, and, you know, and, and to kind of speak towards the book, we we do have some model devices that I think we both recommend for um, for hacking. Um, I've got an informant. Article coming out, informant.com inform yeah, informit.com coming out in mid-December that talks about the various models and firmware that are recommended that you you know you should read and then you know if you get the book you'll you'll kind of had some insight into as to what we're recommending. But I think as far as WRT54G model, the one that we use throughout the book is a WRT54GL
2: mm-hmm. and, um, and or WRTSL54GS. It's the one with the USB port,
1: right? So the GL is. just... Just like your standard WRT54JG dot JG, um, it's the one that's um, you know purple and black with the two antennas that you see all over the place. Um, they're very ubiquitous, and the L stands for Linux, and it allows you to hack the router. And Linksys or Cisco puts them out just so that people can hack them. It's based on the WRT54G version four. Series router, mm-hmm. and you can buy them on Newegg, uh, Amazon, Newegg, Newegg, Amazon, wherever. I like to buy mine from Newegg. I, we ordered a whole bunch from from there. Um, they're about fifty nine dollars. Sometimes you can find them on special. And for sixty bucks, you get this device that you can hack and and pretty much do with what you want, um, and do all the projects that we talk about in the book. A lot of the projects in the book. Um, Especially like that, the adding the extra flash memory or the MMC card hack mm-hmm. uh, we're, were designed for other model routers. We made sure that every hack in the book, uh, just about you can use the WRT54GL to do. Correct. So that that's a great model router to get.
2: Yep. And yeah, one thing I wanted to, you know, just to sort of bring back to your listeners is to, you know, why are you guys talking about this stuff on the Linux Reality Podcast? Um, Ultimately, especially with the WRT54GL and the WRTSL54GS and some other model hardware that we're, we're, we've worked with, um, under the covers, under that nice little web interface that your mom and dad pop up, it's a Linux kernel yep. and um, you know Linux-based device, and specifically the WRT54GL that you're allowed to replace your your firmware with um, our favorite OpenWrt is. A Linux kernel yep, and you know it 's it's busybox, which is all of your essential user land binaries in one binary,
1: so you 've got this little teeny Linux system it 's interesting, busybox was actually formed, uh, which you find on many different embedded devices, so it, it takes the concept of you know you have your ls, you have the cat binary, you may have grep and awk, and these are binaries that you would expect to go on any Linux system. Well, the Debian project um, created an installation CD, and they took the source code from all those binaries and they combined it into this one package. Um, and I don't know if it was called BusyBox back then, but they trimmed it all down so that it would be really have a leave a really small footprint. Embedded developers then took that project and created BusyBox, so that when you only have two megabytes of storage on an embedded device that you can take all those wonderful Linux, Unix binaries such as ls, grep, awk, cat. All the tools you'd expect. All the tools you'd expect, and they trimmed them down and called it BusyBox, and that's much of the foundation for embedded Linux, or in this case, OpenWare is really an instantiation of embedded Linux that's made to run on these kind of devices. So you you certainly get, um, you know, much of the functionality that you'd get in a standard Linux box, except on the small little $59 device.
0: Yeah, it's really cool stuff. And I know that project, uh, um, it, it, that, that's the one that, you know, the uh, the uh, software Freedom Law Center is actually behind the BusyBox, guys, because so many, so many companies are using that project and using that software that they're starting to find some companies that are not you know, complying with the GPL and all that kind of stuff, uh, because it just goes to show you how popular that, that project is.
1: The um, the Linux uh, I think it's from a company called TimeSys, TimeSys.com. They've got the the Linux Link podcast, and they do an interview with the person who was instrumental in developing BusyBox and oh, cool. one of its lead maintainers for quite some time. It's it's one of the best embedded uh, Linux people that they've had on the show. It's a, a great podcast and uh, really kind of opened my eyes to how BusyBox came to light, why it is the way it is, and where it's going moving forward from the person who was responsible for maintaining it for like a couple of years. Um, so I, I highly recommend people who are... Uh, interested in embedded Linux? Go subscribe to that podcast and go listen to. There's about maybe 16 or 17 podcasts out there now. Go listen to all of them. Uh, it's really great and kind of gets you up to speed and gives you really a newfound appreciation for what's uh, happened out there with respects to uh, embedded Linux.
0: Yeah, I've heard of that podcast. I haven't listened to it though, but but that's a that's a really cool recommendation. I think that I mean I'm definitely going to be listening uh, to that episode at least and probably all of them just because it sounds so cool. Um, you know, turning this back again to the sort of the the, the home user and, and kind of you know what people need to face on a day to day basis. I guess one other you know or another thing to to, to maybe mention here is uh, is the need to obviously keep. Just general software, general you know just keep keep the os patched and and updated and and you know keep up with with security updates and and, and that sort of thing. Uh, I imagine that 's something that obviously also applies across the board, no matter what kind of operating system somebody uses
2: definitely and you know and to even add on top of that you know you 're going to install all of this third party software on on top of your operating system. you really need to make sure that you 're maintaining your your software on top of the operating system as well. I mean, what you know, what happens when there's, you know, we're using Skype to do this podcast. What happens when there's a vulnerability, a you know, remote vulnerability in Skype? Um, you really want to make sure that Skype is up to date and you know, that you're checking for updates for that. You've got your automatic updates turned on or checking for all of your applications as well. And then, of course, there's going to be those applications that, yeah, guess what? We won't automatically check for updates. So you're going to want to, you know, make sure that the stuff that you're using regularly and before you use it, go and check that there's updates available.
1: Yeah, one of the things that I recommend to users um, that want to keep up with the software that they have installed, or even devices that they need to keep up to date, because you know it's important that your embedded Linux distribution be up to date as well. Um, anything that uses Linux needs to be, or open source software for that matter, needs to be kept up to date. I.e., Apple with you know, the PCRE library that existed on the iPhone that introduced a a vulnerability. Um, You need to get a a newsreader or RSS newsreader and then uh, subscribe to a bunch of the security uh, software vulnerability feeds that are listing out the software um, that's vulnerable and which versions are vulnerable. There's tons of them out there. And then you need to create a search filter in your newsreader that's going to search for all the different software that you use. So, like, I have one set up that anytime there's a vulnerability in Firefox, uh, Thunderbird, um, my IRC client, which is um uh, you know office for os 10 or you know the software that i really rely on to get my information create my proposals you know do my email if there's ever a vulnerability in that software i have one place where i can go to you on a daily basis and check and say hey are there any updates for this software available and read about them and go take care of that first and i strongly recommend that that people do that there are commercial services that do that the version tracker software We'll actually install in your Windows or OS X uh, workstation and give you updates and take an inventory of all the software on your computer and tell you which software needs to be updated Mm -hmm. um, on a daily basis. So it's very important to keep up with not only your operating system updates, um but all your software as well because we just saw a lot of like media programs such as QuickTime and VLC have programs that can just as easily lead to a security incident as much as a vulnerability in the core operating system mm-hmm. as well yep
2: and and looking at our our chat room while this is going out live um a number of folks are commenting on stuff like SE Linux and AppArmor and GRSEC packs um Thank you absolutely great. You know, probably not something that's going to work out real well for, you know, um, someone who's newer to using Linux. Um, but certainly something, if you're going to keep using it, something to to look at. Um, e- even tripwire host intrusion prevention systems. Oh, you know, the sky's the limit.
0: Right. Yeah, I know uh, Fedora's uh, been really pushing uh, SD Linux mm-hmm. uh, because I know, you know, Red Hat uh, uses that extensively as well. And uh, I think you know Fedora being sort of the testing ground for for Red Hat Linux, you know the the enterprise version. It's something that I've I've used from time to time. I don't I don't use Fedora on a daily basis, but um, you know those are those are interesting technologies that I think will probably be evolving even more over time. But but the stuff you know both you guys were talking about with all these sort of you know user basic user applications, whether they're web browsers or email clients. Again, that's something that I've that I've really learned a lot from from listening to your show is just how just how vulnerable some of this stuff is and, and you know, going to normal websites, it doesn't even have to be, you know, websites that are sort of at the rough edges of the of the internet.
2: Yeah, straightforward,
0: mm. you know, yeah, straightforward websites with with any kind of uh, some kind of browser or or you know client-side scripting vulnerability. It's and, and it sounds like those are the kinds of things that, that we all need to worry about as well.
1: Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. The the latest QuickTime flaw, the RTSP Um, vulnerability that was uh, released and there's still no patch for it to this day um, is is one of those good examples of how a vulnerability in an application in even one that runs on an operating system that has protections such as Windows Vista has -hmm. that protection called ASLR and that's a lot of what the Linux kernel and those things that Larry talked about are implementing, that's address space layout randomization, it makes it very difficult in layman's terms for an attacker to execute a buffer overflow or exploit software. And those protections exist in Vista. However, Apple produced QuickTime, which users installed on Vista, but the version of QuickTime that Apple produced doesn't take advantage of those operating system features. So that's a really scary example of where you can be running Vista for the enhanced security, for example, um, and be running a vulnerable application like QuickTime, but that leaves yourself exposed to all of those threats out there because the software that you installed after the fact doesn't use the operating system's security mechanisms. Um, So I I think that being aware and paying attention to client security is really important, even if your operating system is super secure. Now, Linux implements a lot of that um, differently, and I think that open source developers are a little more proactive in taking advantage of a lot of the latest security features. Um, But users need to be aware that you know, maybe just because their operating system has these extra protections that it's up to the software developer to actually implement them to provide the user with that extra protection. Mm-hmm.
0: mm-hmm. Yeah, it really is kind of scary just how much of a vector the, you know, the, the web browser mm. is. It, it almost seems like, you know, uh, five years ago when we had all these worms and 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 things going on, you know, around the internet. I mean, I'm sure that there are still going to be things like that, but it but it really seems like it's it's targeting the individual user, whether it's phishing scams or or what have you. It's really kind of scary.
1: <laughs> yeah, and I think, you know, a lot of that is user education. Um, certainly, there are attacks that even user education isn't isn't going to solve. Um, but you know, that's why we always recommend that people have a defense-in-depth strategy, and you know, you need to not only educate your users, make sure on the latest versions of software. Implement some kind of antivirus system. Mm -hmm. Have a firewall. Have a firewall, intrusion detection, intrusion prevention. Um, That's why we have all those layers, is it really? We're just trying to make it more difficult for attackers to compromise our systems. And in the end, that's really all you can do. There's always going to be a way in. I think that, you know, one of the things that certainly I've learned and, and Larry's learned in the past couple of years of doing our podcast is. There's always a vulnerability out there. There's always some new exploit um, methodology, even if it's not just taking advantage of a software vulnerability. There's always some new method of man-in-the-middle attack, social engineering technique.
2: Mm-hmm. There, Yeah, there is no um, patch for human stupidity. Yeah,
1: taking advantage of some protocol that... You know, isn't a software vulnerability, but, you know, like the WPAD vulnerability um, in Windows, which is just taking advantage of the functionality of the way Windows works, there's always going to be some way in for an attacker. And that really the only thing we can truly do is build enough layers of defense um, against our information that, you know, we're protected
0: yeah well that's that's really great advice and and it's you know it's something that you know i mean I like to think of myself as being you know fairly up on on you know uh, things related to security and stuff but you know there's there's i think there's stuff that all of us can do I mean I don't run any kind of software firewalls on any of my machines I mean I'm obviously behind a nat router and all this kind of you know I've got you know I use wpa on my on my wireless network and stuff but I just Yeah, especially since I mean everything at home is all Linux. I don't have any Windows machines. I've got one Mac, but um, I mean I've been using Linux for years now, and I just you know I just I just don't bother. But you know it's. It's probably something that couldn't hurt. Well, I,
1: I think in Linux, it, it, you know, it, it's a good idea to configure an IP tables firewall. And especially if you're on a laptop environment, you're going to take that laptop and you're going to go to an open wireless network somewhere in a coffee shop. Mm-hmm. And you want to make sure that you have a properly configured firewall. And I, I, that speaks volumes to your security on any platform, OS 10, Windows or Linux, um, in an open Wi-Fi environment. Now, on the Windows side, it's interesting When you install a software firewall, um, it's very easily subverted. (laughs) Do you Uh, want to allow? Yes. No. It's one of those things we like to talk about on the podcast um, that kind of – it makes us very excited. It's called DLL injection. And that's how people are getting around the Windows firewall. So, for example, like Zone Alarm, you install that on your system. And um, when you start up Internet Explorer for the first time, Um, your zone alarm firewall asks you, hey, do you want to allow Internet Explorer to connect to the Internet? And you go, well, yeah, yeah, (laughs) I got to browse the Internet. So it allows Internet Explorer out. Then you somehow contract some kind of malware, and that could be browsing to the New York Times website and you load a banner ad that loads some malicious software. It latches on to Internet Explorer and uses its its permissions in the zone alarm firewall via a mechanism called DLL injection. To actually communicate out, create a covert channel, talk to your attacker, download all your stored passwords in Internet Explorer, which may include your bank website – your uh, financial website within your own corporation, whatever the case may be. Oh, and by the way, subvert your software firewall into uh, accepting all these connections silently. Exactly. So, (laughs) and not only that, (laughs) software (laughs) firewalls in Windows have their own vulnerabilities, and a lot of malware will either try to kill your software firewalls or exploit vulnerabilities in your software firewall to gain access to your workstation. So now... A method that you're using to protect your laptop is being used against you and exposing you to more threats. And you know, even in a Linux environment, IP tables could be the same way. There could be a vulnerability in IP tables that exposes um, some kind of vulnerability to a potential attacker. Um, so you have to be very careful as to which software you're implementing on on your system. Um, I think it's more appropriate to say that for the Windows world, um, I think on on Linux, implementing IP tables is is certainly much safer. Um, as part of your kernel, I think as long as you're keeping up with kernel updates, that um, you know you're 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 much safer there. Um, but on the Windows world, I, I don't recommend that people run a software firewall that's like a third-party add-on, I say run what comes with your operating system. So I think in Linux, you know, that certainly equates to IP mm-hmm. tables. Oh, yeah. In um, Windows, that equates to the firewall that that's built in. Which of course doesn't have the ability to block outgoing traffic, and I don't even want to get started on the OS
0: 10 firewall.
1: We don't, <laughs> yeah. have, we don't have time on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we have time on any podcast.
0: <laughs> well, I think yeah, that, yeah. That's those are some really interesting points, and I, I agree. I mean, I would think you know, and IP tables is obviously kind of difficult to configure manually. There are some good websites, and I'll put some some links in the show notes to where you can. Uh, it'll it's basically a you know almost like a PHP script that will generate. You know, it, mm-hmm. uh, it will generate an IP tables script. It's just a you know something you can do on, online and just download the text file, the script that it generates. But there's also nice uh, GUI front ends to IP tables like Firestarter and and some others in Linux. Um, that so certainly, especially for new users who are not used to to writing their own IP tables rules because it is fairly complex. Mm-hmm. Which yeah. is why I, I which is why I like to use uh, OpenBSD's. Pf. <laughs> yeah. I, I guess I take uh, I
1: take that for granted because you know, like I said, I got my start in computer security, working with firewalls, and I I, um, I managed firewalls for a, a very large organization, fourteen thousand uh, you know computers, and I was like the one firewall guy uh, for so long. I, I introduced firewalls into the environment. I, I lived and breathed firewalls for a long time, so. It, it, and they all kind of just blend together at this point. So, like once you've spent that much time with firewalls, it doesn't really matter whether it's a net screen, a Cisco PIX, or IP tables. It all the concepts are the same. So uh, it's just a I, matter, know, it's just a matter for, of figuring out the
2: syntax. Yeah,
1: and that's for people right. that want to make it their living. And you know, Chester, you're absolutely right. I think the average user, you're going to want to find that add-on that kind of helps you write all those firewall rules. Um, because for someone who isn't exposed to it as much as I was that even more than I really even want to admit, um, uh, you know, they need that, that extra help. And, um, I think there's a lot of tools for Linux that uh, allow you to do that and, uh, do that uh, effectively And, and you should use them and not, you know, it might break things, but the beauty of a firewall is that if it breaks something and it drops Traffic that it's not supposed to it's going to log it, and you should be able to go in and review those logs and, and come up with a good rule set uh, for your environment and um, you know that that can really that can do some good uh, in your line of defense against attackers certainly. right
2: and and certainly if you're going down the Linux route um, be prepared to tinker and this is one of those perfectly perfect yeah. opportunities for uh, you to start tinkering with firewall rules block mm-hmm. it figure out why it doesn't work when you've blocked it. And uh, take it as a learning experience.
1: Yeah, and you know you really haven't earned your stripes as a firewall um, administrator or someone who configures firewalls rules till you've cut off the branch that you're standing on. And <laughs> so when you're SSH remotely into your Linux machine and you're making <laughs> firewall changes and all of a sudden you can't get there because you cut off the branch you're standing on, you know that's right. when you've really earned your stripes. You need to do that at least once or twice. I think yeah, maybe think you truly times. understand what's you know uh, what what's happening there.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think I've done that. I did that with PF one time, so. Yep, yep. <laughs> it happens. It happens. What you know speaking of firewalls and, and thinking back to routers and stuff, have you guys played around with or what what are your thoughts on some of these uh Linux distributions and and you know FreeBSD distributions like uh uh you know Monowall and PF Sense and Smoothwall and Clark Connect and IP Cop, those kind of things. What you know are, what, do you recommend folks play around with those things and possibly use those as their you know first line of of, of defense in their home network
1: i i think that it, it it's a good introduction mm-hmm. and i i'd like to see people get started with those distributions but move to a model where they are managing the rules themselves. Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
2: And, and absolutely, certainly get those those types of things to get the concepts of the firewalls down, get configured, uh, get familiar with configuring PF and or IP tables. Um, take that configuration that works for them. Move them to a custom box and don't make the same mistakes I did years ago and use that box for a firewall and a firewall only.
1: There are some great um, examples out there, and I'm sure, Chess, you've, you've talked about it in your show probably and, and, you know, can find many examples online where people have set up Linux boxes with two network interfaces that implement IP tables and and can provide a comprehensive rule set. Um, you know, I, I think that if, you know juniper or netscreen didn't give me a a really expensive firewall that that's the firewall solution that i would Mm -hmm. that i would implement Mm -hmm. you know i'm lucky that the 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 vendor that i'm really comfortable with um provided (coughs) me with um a, a firewall but i i would certainly fall back to a you know a linux or or bsd firewall if if i didn't have that and you can you can get some serious throughput through that firewall and have a lot of things that you can do in addition to what an out-of-the-box firewall is going to provide. Like if you can run, you know, set up a Linux firewall, get it all working, and then implement something like Snort, an intrusion detection system, right on your firewall. Mm-hmm. That's a really, really powerful thing.
0: Yeah, and you're right about the through- about the throughput. I noticed a huge difference when I my uh, my outside box. You know, my my outside facing box is actually a. A SoCris running OpenBSD and oh, very um, P- nice. and PF and that I I mean I noticed a real difference in throughput once I put that thing out there mm-hmm. is great it's a lot of fun yeah I think with. I think one of
1: the advantages that the SoCris embedded devices have um I, I think that's a great project that, um you know they're they're not that expensive but it gives you an x86 or or Linux mm-hmm. native environment. Mm-hmm. Where you yep. don't have to cross compile yeah. things, and you can I play agree. with Linux. And yeah. you know, one of the things that we struggled with when we wrote our book and started playing with OpenWrt was that it was a different processor sure. architecture. Mm. So, like, is it MacBook, an ARM? Um, it's a MIPS actually. Okay. okay. Yeah. So, like, MacBooks and most you know, all Windows computers for the most part are all x86 or Intel instruction sets. When you start getting into all these embedded devices, you're going to encounter a totally different CPU or processor. And that means that you have to take your software and you have to recompile it. And we call that cross-compiling when I go on my x86 Linux box and I compile things for a MIPS architecture or an ARM architecture. And that's one of the challenges that we ran into is we wanted some software to run on our MIPS architecture, and we'd have to do a lot of cross compiling. Now, OpenWRT makes that fantastically easy. I think it's one of yeah. the best build environments out there with the new version. Absolutely. Yeah, the new version, with Kamikaze. With Kamikaze. Yeah, it's really easy to recompile software and, and cross compile it. And we did that, and you know, we have our website set up where people can download our our work and see how we did that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Chris is awesome because you don't have to go through all that trouble. You can take Whatever's out there for Linux on x86, and apply that to your embedded device, and that's a hugely powerful thing. But so.
2: you know, but regardless, back on the firewall tangent, if you're using pf or IP tables, you know those configurations will work regardless of which device you're working on, as long mm-hmm. as you have your interfaces specified correctly. Right. So you can take an IP tables a rule set that works on your um, your your Mac or your open work device and put it on your uh, your Sakaris box.
0: Right. Yeah. Well. I- I know we've been talking a long time. This is just such cool stuff. I really. I mean, I can talk for hours. (laughs) We talk all night. We (laughs) have
2: enough beer.
0: (laughs) Let me ask you one other thing. Um, You know, speaking of of you know some of the tools that you guys have used, and you've touched on a couple. um, What are some of the either command line tools or GUI tools? I guess I'm thinking you know Nmap, Wireshark, that kind of thing. What do you guys? What's in the toolbox? Um, that maybe even a home user can use, uh, or a home Linux user can use, I guess, to test the network and play around and and you know learn learn a little bit about how all this stuff works. Mm-hmm,
2: mm-hmm. You know, cer- certainly I'll throw out uh, Nmap, Nessus, uh, Kismet for some some wireless stuff. Mm. Um, yeah, those are those are some of the really big ones. Uh, Wireshark. Uh, don't forget the uh, Wireshark book from Singers. I got to add another plug in there. I did a chapter in that book as well. Um, those are you know, some of the big things for some of the basics. Um, Paul, you got anything else you want to add to Yeah, that?
1: I, I'd say along the lines of, um, you know, I certainly all the tools that Larry mentioned, um, huge fan of NMAP. I think that uh, I, I taught earlier this year, I taught a, a course on NMAP and Nessus. And I really, as much as I used NMAP, even from the very start of my security career, I grew a newfound appreciation for all the things that NMAP does. And, For so long, a lot of that functionality went undocumented. They introduced version 4. They started documenting more and more of its functionality, and it's truly amazing Mm -hmm. all of the things that Nmap can do to be able to scan and probe your network and the things it does with TCP IP, the things it does with UDP and the other IP protocols. It's truly an amazing tool. Um, The other tool that I will add on to, to Larry's list is in addition to Wireshark, I strongly recommend that you put TCP dump, oh, the, yeah, the command yeah, yeah, yeah. line version, yeah. packet sniffer. Uh, I use TCP dump, uh, if not on a daily basis, on a weekly basis, as part of my normal course of business in troubleshooting, in security analysis, in just everything that I do as a computer security professional. Um, I'm using TCP dump and. It, it it really behooves all of our our Linux uh, um, users, whether you know you're just getting started in Linux or have been using uh, Linux or Unix for 20 years. You need to be familiar with TCP dump. I, you know, I I've solved problems from troubleshooting my own little home networks or just being curious to solving huge network bandwidth utilization problems for really, really large organizations just by using you know, one command, and that's TCP dump. So I, I think that's probably my number one recommendation for um, a, a tool to use uh, on Linux. Right, and certainly Wireshark is definitely a
2: definite precursor to start figuring out all that packet analysis uh, to TCP dump. But again, TCP dump, capture it to a file, look at look at it in Wireshark
1: yeah Wireshark's just really a GUI for for mm-hmm. TCP dump so I think that the you know the command line version certainly you know on your WRT fifty four G where there is no GUI when you SSH mm-hmm. remotely into a server and all you have is a command line and no X Windows environment, you can use TCP dump and I've just found it tremendously useful in uh, in my career throughout, you know, all kinds of troubleshooting and analysis and, and general
0: curiosity. Here, here TCP dump. <laughs> <laughs> what how um what do you use uh, what switches do you use with uh, nmap to kind of get a big picture view or what would you recommend if someone's getting started with nmap to use that to kind of you know get a picture of the of the network?
1: Sure, I, I'd say that the first recommendation um is uh, get permission. Sure, <laughs> yeah, is get permission. Make sure you know it's on yeah, your, your any own, of those tools. Get yeah, permission. Get permission. <laughs> right. Um, for nmap it, it dash p. is going to give you the port range. And NMAP has kind of like a default list of ports that if you don't specify dash P, it'll scan for. Mm -hmm. I always, whether I'm scanning for TCP or UDP, I like to scan for all 65,536 even ports, you know, zero through um, 65,535, all the valid TCP and UDP ports because you never know, especially, you know, nowadays you don't know what port a service is going to be listening on. So if you're you're attempting to to probe a host and see what ports it has open, you wanna make sure you're hitting all the ports. So I always do dash P one through sixty five five three five. Um, mm-hmm. It's probably my top recommendation to make sure yeah. that in every nmap command you run, you do that. Now it's going to take longer to scan your host because you're scanning for all the ports, but certainly that, that's one of my top recommendations. Mm-hmm.
2: And, and and so sort of that to Paul, I don't know the command line options off the top of my head, and you probably will. How about um, operating system identification? Yeah, dash uh, capital, capital O, capital O. Yeah. Um, how about service identification? Uh, that's dash lowercase s. Capital V. Okay. So, for example, one of those things that you just mentioned, Paul, was that, you know, running things, you know, to, to sort of avoid stuff, um, SSH attacks happen all the time on port 22. So you set your SSH daemon to run on port 822, and um, map finds 822 open. It says by the default, um, you know, the default configuration that 822 is port, you know, is for this service that's registered. Okay, well, now it's going to take a look at the traffic and say, oh, well, it's not really that. It's really SSH running on port 22. So that's yeah. why you know service pr- fingerprinting can be helpful.
1: Yeah, service f- fingerprinting actually sends like a little tickler to, like in Larry's example, port Ooh. 822 and um, and tries to figure out what service is listening on that port. Um, so uh, I typically do a dash lowercase s, capital S, which just sends a SIN send packet to every port, which says is your port open or not? Mm-hmm. And then I see what comes back to me. So if it comes back to me and says, hey, I scanned this host, I you know I sent a, you know, are you listening on this port packet or a SYN packet to all 65,535 ports and only this one port 822 came back and I looked up port 822 or 8222 in my you know local database and it says it's some like weird like deck net thing or something yeah. i don't know what it, whatever it says it is and i'm like well that doesn't make sense so i'll run this the same scan i'll use dash lowercase s capital v and i'll use a dash p 8222 which tells me only scan that one port and then it'll send all the service identification packets to that port, and then it'll come back and says, hey, what's listening on this port, I think it's SSH. Um, So that's a really powerful mechanism for determining what's running on a remote host.
2: And and, and to Paul's credit, uh, Paul's got some great notes in our our wiki for the podcast. Um, So go to paul.com.com forward slash wiki. And right there, there's a listing for his uh, Nmap and Nessus course notes. Uh, He's got a lot of great links for uh, both using Nmap and Nessus for some security stuff, including permission slips and getting permission.
1: Yeah, and you know, make sure you go to insecure.org and read the current nmap documentation thoroughly. If you're really truly interested in nmap, I think when I when I was teaching the course and and putting it together, I spent a lot of time reading the documentation from Fyodor um, uh, on nmap and you know the whole nmap team and what they put together. It, it's really fascinating all the things that nmap can do, and they do a good job of documenting it.
0: Well, that's great. That's really, really helpful. And because NMAP is something, I mean, I, I, you know, I play around with. I use it from time to time, but I haven't taken the time to to really learn it. And those switches you mentioned, that's exactly what I was about to ask you. In fact, you must have been reading my my mind because I was wondering about the service identification. If you're going to scan all the ports, so could you combine all of that into? I guess it would be like dash small s, big s, capital P, and then V. I mean, you know, I mean, to, to do uh, a... Yeah, no, uh, yeah. so
1: dash lowercase s, you can only choose one. Yep. Okay. So, okay. so
2: so yeah, dash lowercase s.
1: There may be some, I, uh, may be some cases where you can combine a dash lowercase s with a capital S, which sends a sin packet, and a lowercase s capital U. I want to say, I think I've done that before, <laughs> but typically I break them out into multiple, yeah. multiple Into scans. multiple yeah. scans. Yeah, but, but off yeah. the okay. bat, certainly
2: you can do a lower case, uh, capital S, lowercase mm-hmm. s. Or the other way around. Lowercase s, lowercase capital, capital, capital s, s yeah. um, slash lowercase p, define a port range slash y, capital u for UDP service
1: identification. So for u, uh, UDP, <laughs> <laughs> we've been drinking. Can you tell? <laughs> uh, I don't think it does. Well, we, u, it doesn't do UDP yeah, service identification. Case. So, okay. uh, Chess, you mentioned the uh, dash capital p. Um, As your new Unix uh, or Linux users uh, Mm -hmm. come into uh, know Linux and love Linux, they'll notice that the big difference, right, between Windows and Linux is that it's case-sensitive. Linux Mm -hmm. is case-sensitive. So dash capital P um, tells Nmap. So when you start Nmap by default, if you just said Nmap and then a particular host um, with some options, Nmap's going to check to make sure that that host is up or alive before it starts scanning it and sending 65,535 packets to it. And by default, it sends two packets to the host to make sure that it's up. So no matter what you specify for, you know, dash lowercase s, capital S, dash P, a whole bunch of ports, dash capital O for OS fingerprinting, it's going to send two packets to the host before it does anything. And that's an ICMP echo request and a a TCMP uh, ACK packet on port 80. So it actually sends a packet to port 80 and sends an ICMP or ping echo request to the host before it does anything. Mm -hmm. If If you construct your NMAP command and you do dash uppercase P... Zero, that will skip that test and scan all 65,535 ports or whatever you specified to scan without first doing the test to make sure that it's up. So big difference okay. between lowercase b and capital P. <laughs> right,
0: right. Okay, good. And the, did you say the uh, the information is on the wiki? It is. Yeah, I know?
1: have a, a page there where I put together a whole bunch of resources. I believe there's a link to the NMAP documentation in that wiki page yep, as well. There is, there is. Yeah, okay. so you can find dot uh,
2: com forward slash wiki. Yeah, it's right cool. there on the
1: front page. Um, yep.
2: so
0: cool well this has just been really awesome um, we, you know, we, you totally, know,
2: I, we totally blew your half hour <laughs> <laughs> yeah I you know
0: <laughs> I just find this stuff' really really neat and uh, uh, what, where can someone or you know where would you all recommend people go I guess you know obviously your sites and you know I, I want you all to mention both your sites and and but can you talk about SANS? that you know if someone wants to maybe learn a little bit more about security uh, whether it's someone who's just thinking about starting out and you don't need to you know you don't need to g- go into everything but i mean just just what are your sort of you know uh, basic tips on someone who's interested in security and and you know things along these lines well
1: you know, sure. of course there's always uh, paul.com.com that's p a u l d o t c o m dot com. and shameless plug yeah <laughs> um the website for the our book just to get that out of the way too um, is uh wrt54ghacks.com yep mm-hmm. um, and i'd say for someone starting out um, that wants to learn more certainly the site if i had to pick one that really helped me out the most i'd um i'd certainly securityfocus.com mm-hmm. comes to mind as a really good one to get started with
2: mm-hmm. and i would certainly say you know you know given the sans tie mm-hmm. for us uh sans. Dot org forward slash rr which is the sands reading room which is all the papers for all those folks that have done the uh the certifications for their gold level yep um great stuff there lots of research um
1: yeah also um Mm isc.sands.org is the internet storm center um our most recent episode that we recorded just before this interview was um we had one of the sands internet storm center handles joel essler on on the show and um you can find their website with the latest uh trends and what's happening with uh you know computer security on a global level mm-hmm. and um, daily and, yeah and daily at isc.sans.org that's internet storm center uh isc.sans.org
0: are sans conferences open to everybody or yep absolutely
1: Okay. Yeah, you can uh, you can attend a SANS conference if you go to the the dot org website, you'll see a listing of um, you know U.S. or international training, whatever wherever you might be. You can uh, get SANS training uh, locally through programs where local people teach SANS courses for those in uh, you know the Rhode Island Mass area. Um, you know, Larry, myself, uh, and uh, one or two other people teach them locally here in Rhode Island. Um, There's also um, the at-home and on-demand programs. So you can um, basically go online and read the slides and listen to a pre-recorded teaching of the class, and that's on-demand. You can use the at-home program, and that's an audio-only interactive program. Uh, offering of the course so for example ed scotus will come on um and like four hours a week at a regular uh time and you can uh, listen to him live and interact with him via a uh, a chat program uh, and receive the training that way um like i said you can go to a sans conference you can do uh, a self-study and you know, do all the studying on your own. You can couple your self study with a local mentor program and meet uh, for a few hours a week for like six weeks and uh, have a, a local mentor in your area lead your study and answer your questions. Uh, so there's all kinds of ways you can get uh, SANS training, or certainly my start into computer security. I had a you know a fantastic experience with SANS, and I've been very intimately uh, involved with SANS uh, for quite some time. And I have a SANS course right now. It's called Security 535. Uh, it's suffering from a, a name change right now. Uh, it focuses on Im- embedded device hacking, so I encourage people to to go sign up for for my class. I do have a, a keynote that I have put together for SANS, uh called "Things That Go Bump in the Network: Embedded Device Security." Very cool.
0: So, very cool stuff. Very cool stuff. Well, guys, is there anything you know that I didn't mention that I maybe I didn't ask you or that I should have asked you that that you know I should I should ask you now before we wrap up?
1: Uh, Larry wears women's underwear on Tuesdays.
0: Hey, hey. <laughs> Only said, on Tuesdays? The sad part is
2: it's your women's underwear <laughs> and you're wearing it on Monday. Uh, oh, wait a minute! not Tuesday. <laughs> yeah. That's right,
1: that's right. Yeah,
2: it's, Thursdays. it's, it's Thursday. It's kind of a whole, totally
1: new theme for Thursdays. Oh, uh, <laughs> boy. Yeah. Uh, you had to get that
0: in I did, I yeah, did. That's all right.
2: <laughs> That's all right. I'm used to it.
0: (laughs) Well, guys, thanks again so much. I really appreciate it. Um, I I highly recommend folks listen to your podcast, and I'll put all the links in the show notes and everything, and this has been a lot of fun. So thank you very much for taking the time.
1: Thank you, Thank you very much, Jess.
0: Okay, well, I hope you guys enjoyed that interview as much as, as I enjoyed uh, doing the interview. It was great fun talking to them, very easy guys to talk to, a lot of fun. I mean, they seem to have a lot of fun together, and it really shows in their in their podcast and in the interview, so really cool stuff. And I learn something from their show every week. And again, I cannot, you know, I cannot recommend it enough to go to uh, paul.com, .com, and you'll see a link for the paul.com security weekly podcast. And let's see, what else here? Um, ways to contact me, uh, as you know, you can send me an email to linuxreality at gmail.com. You can also drop by the IRC channel uh, on FreedNode. That's uh, hash linuxreality on irc.freednode.net. Been hanging out there a lot, chatting with folks, having a good time. And, of course, the forums, very active forums, lots of members and lots of discussions going on every single day. That's linuxreality.com slash forums. And you can also go to linuxreality.com slash contact and get all the uh you know, phone numbers, the voicemail numbers, and all that kind of good stuff if you want to leave me a voicemail or a listener tip or audio feedback or anything like that. So, uh, I think that's going to do it for me this week. I'm going to come back for one more episode before I take my little, you know, four to five week break over the holidays and uh, through this uh, trip out to San Francisco for the uh, KDE kickoff event at Google, uh, which is in mid-January. Uh, so, I won't be doing anything but between now, you know, I'll have one more and then I'll be off. And I'll be back, you know, towards the end of January, something like that, with a probably a discussion of the KDE event, and we'll, get, we'll you know pick right back up where we left off. So, hope you all, uh, hope everybody has a great week and a great weekend, and I'll catch y'all next week. This has been episode 89 of Linux Reality. See you later. Bye bye.